Does the pancreas make insulin in response to glucose because it's concerned about whether we have too much glucose or because it's concerned about whether we have enough glucose? Find out in this lesson. Ketogenic diet has neurological benefits. Why do we have to eat such an enormous amount of food? Complex science, clear explanations. Class is starting now. I'm Dr. Chris Masterjohn of chrismasterjohnphd.com, and you're watching Masterclass with Masterjohn. We are now in our 28th in a series of lessons on the system of energy metabolism. And today we're going to integrate a lot of what we've seen so far in the various lessons about specifically valuable uses of glucose. And we're going to look at the question, is the pancreas making insulin in response to glucose because it's concerned that it doesn't want glucose to reach too high of a level and cause harm, or because it wants to know that we have enough glucose and uses insulin as a gauge of that? Well, the answer is probably a little bit of both. You can certainly make an argument that what's happening when you have glucose rising above normal fasting levels is you have this preferential directing of glucose to hepatic glycogen and then to the pancreas, so the pancreas can make insulin that causes you to skim everything off the top and direct it to the tissues that have the greatest ability to metabolize that glucose, especially skeletal muscle and adipose tissue. But we could also look at insulin as a gauge of energy status, and at glucose, as a specifically valuable source of that energy. So let's take a look at exploring that perspective and then come to a conclusion at the end. Shown on the screen is a summary of the things that impact insulin secretion in the pancreas that we explored in lesson 23. The primary event that triggers insulin is an increase in the ATP to ADP ratio in the pancreatic beta cell. And this itself strongly suggests that insulin is a reaction to energy status because carbs, protein, and fat are all capable of generating ATP, at least at a biochemical level. We also saw that there were multiple amplification signals that make that triggering of insulin more effective, meaning given the increase in the ATP within the beta cell, you get more of an insulin response when it's amplified by these other signals. One of those signals was anaplerosis, supplying citric acid cycle intermediates to the point beyond the need of the cetric acid cycle so that it leads to catapleurosis, which is their exit. And their exit, indicating that the citric acid cycle is overfilling, drives amplification of, of the triggering response. 
Anaplerosis is primarily driven by carbs and protein. Carbs are the first source, protein the secondary one, fat has little value for anaplerosis. Lipogenesis leads to various things happening that also feed into the amplification signal. Lipogenesis is driven by malonyl-CoA, and malonyl-CoA can come from anything that acetyl-CoA can come from, whether it's carbs, protein, or fat. NADPH from the pentose phosphate pathway also acts as an amplification signal, and the pentose phosphate pathway is specifically fed by carbs. So if we look at the amplification signals, on just the biochemical level, carbs are the most versatile in supporting amplification and fat is the least. But you can also look at that as maybe the amplification is just a gauge of the versatility of the energy sources. Why else would there be so many different signs that you have an overabundance of energy that all feed into amplification unless amplification is meant to be built up in response to the versatility of different energy supplies. And if you look just at the fact that carbs, protein, and fat can supply one pathway, carbs and protein another, and only carbs in another, you can see that depending on what you're getting for energy, that versatility can be strongly impacted by the composition of your diet. Although at a biochemical level, carbs, protein, and fat are all equally able to generate ATP in the pancreatic beta cell, the wiring of carbs versus fat through the body because of anatomy and physiology and the relative expression of glucose transporters and lipoprotein lipase means that carbohydrate rather than fat is going to be the primary source of ATP in the pancreatic beta cell. Carbs first go to the liver, and the liver takes the top off of anything that exceeds normal fasting levels using GLUT2 and glucokinase. Carbs then go to the pancreas, which also has GLUT2 and glucokinase, and takes the rest off the top of the excess of glucose above normal fasting levels. The pancreas makes insulin, which stimulates GLUT4, as well as hexokinase 2, and under relatively low energy conditions, that drives carbs to the muscle and heart. And under high energy conditions, it drives, drives carbs to the adipose tissue. By contrast, fat will be driven by lipoprotein lipase expression under low energy conditions into the muscle and heart and under high energy conditions into adipose tissue. But fat can impact the pancreatic ATP level under certain specific conditions. Pancreatic lipoprotein lipase, at least from mouse experiments, can be activated by very severe hyperglycemia. More commonly, fat would make its way into the pancreas through fatty acid spillover. Fatty acid spillover is driven by obesity, insulin resistance, or very high fat meals. Anything that makes the amount of fat that goes through lipoprotein lipase, particularly at adipose tissue, greater than what that adipose tissue is capable of taking up. So carbs are wired straight to the pancreas under any conditions, whereas fat only reaches the pancreas as a source of ATP 
under certain specific conditions. Well, why are these wired in this way? Certainly, we could point out that heart and skeletal muscle at low intensities of activity are almost exclusively burning fat. So it makes sense that under low energy conditions, fat would go there first. And certainly adipose tissue is going to store fat under high energy conditions. And it's way easier to get fat into adipose fat than to turn carbohydrate into fat. And you can also make a case that indeed the pancreas is responding first to high carbohydrate because it wants to make enough insulin to bring carbohydrate levels in the blood down to normal. That's certainly a sensible explanation. However, if we consider the basic biochemistry in the pancreatic beta cell that all suggests insulin responds to energy status, to the total energy as ATP, and to the versatility of energy through all the different amplification signals, then we can also look at maybe carbs are wired in this way because of their unique level of versatility as an energy source. So from that perspective, let's look at some of the things that we've already seen that carbohydrate can do that fat can't. Glucose is the only fuel that allows cytosolic generation of ATP. During glycolysis, we generate net to ATP in the cytosol, and most ATP production happens in the electron transport chain in the mitochondrion. Even with glucose, we generate about 2 ATP in the cytosol and then 30 in the mitochondrion. But cytosolic ATP is uniquely valuable in multiple contexts. In lesson 15, we discussed these contexts. Among them, red blood cells don't have any mitochondria. They need to spit out most of their organelles to make room for hemoglobin so they can carry oxygen. So all of their ATP is cytosolic, which means it all comes from glucose. In addition, some cells and tissues are poorly oxygenated, which means that their mitochondria can't make enough ATP to fulfill their needs, and they have to rely more on glycolysis. These include the lens and cornea of the eye, the testes, and the kidney medulla. Further, in high-intensity exercise, which we saw in lessons 17 and 18, cytosolic ATP is critical to reaching peak intensity during that exercise. Finally, in astrocytes, cytosolic ATP is the main source of ATP, and they generate lactate and feed the lactate to neurons. Further, only glucose allows a tissue to borrow energy from the liver through the Cori cycle. Remember, in high-intensity exercise, not only are we getting the 2-ATP from the glucose in the cytosol, and we get the speed of having that ATP directly where we need it for muscular contraction, but also if the muscle or some other tissue is in a severe energetic debt and needs more energy than it can generate itself with the fuel that it has inside itself, generating lactate from the pyruvate that comes from glycolysis 
can allow the lactate to travel to the liver to become pyruvate again, to become glucose to gluconeogenesis. Gluconeogenesis is very inefficient, so it's using up six ATP worth of energy instead of two. But it carries that energy derived from that ATP back into the blood as glucose, back into the muscle, and it allows the muscle to borrow ATP energy from the liver when its supply of energy is running low. Similarly, any other lactate-producing tissue that provides lactate into the blood could borrow energy from the liver in the same way. Glucose is the main source of anaplerosis for the citric acid cycle. Glucose providing pyruvate is what will usually provide oxaloacetate when the citric acid cycle intermediates are running low because they've been used up for their various biosynthetic purposes. If you don't have enough glucose, you can derive anaplerotic substrates from protein. For example, some amino acids generate pyruvate, some generate oxaloacetate, some generate other citric acid cycle intermediates that become oxaloacetate. And protein can act as a source of anaplerosis. However, fat has very little ability to contribute to anaplerosis. As we covered in the last lesson, only glucose supports the production of NADPH and 5-carbon sugars in the pentose phosphate pathway. NADPH is used for antioxidant defense by supporting the recycling of glutathione. It's a recycler of vitamin K and folate, and it's involved in the synthesis of fatty acids, cholesterol, neurotransmitters, and nucleotides. 5-carbon sugars are used in DNA and RNA. In all of the energy carriers, like NADPH, NADH, FADH2, coenzyme A, and ATP. So, to grow our tissues and duplicate our DNA, to reproduce, requires these five carbon sugars. To translate the information in our DNA to proteins, which requires making an RNA template, requires these five carbon sugars. The entirety of energy metabolism requires these five carbon sugars. If we look at something like ATP, it's heavily dependent on the pentose phosphate pathway because it has five carbon sugars and requires NADPH in its synthesis since it's nucleotide. So glucose exclusively is supporting antioxidant defense the recycling of nutrients like vitamin K and folate, the synthesis of fatty acids, cholesterol, neurotransmitters, nucleotides, DNA, RNA, and every part of the infrastructure of energy metabolism. That makes glucose extremely important. And this certainly is what it looks like when we look at the fact that on a biochemical level, the triggering of insulin is primarily a response to ATP and amplification of that triggering signal is stimulated by a wide diversity of specific types of energetic pathways, which paints a picture where it looks like insulin is primarily a response to energy and responds most strongly to energetic versatility. This makes even more sense when we look at all the things that insulin does outside of energy metabolism. This is 
not the place to comprehensively review it, but just to give you a taste. Insulin supports the production and activation of thyroid hormone. It products, pro, supports the synthesis of glutathione, the master antioxidant of the cell, which also plays an important role in detoxification and supports lung health by maintaining mucus in a fluid state, by keeping the bronchioles dilated, so playing a very preventative role in asthma, and regulating a whole host of hundreds of proteins to control their function. And insulin also stimulates enzymes involved in the defense of glycation, a topic that we'll be returning to in much more detail later. So it would be far too narrow to say that the function of insulin is primarily to stimulate glucose uptake. It would be profoundly inaccurate to characterize insulin primarily as a fat storage hormone for the reasons that we discussed in Lesson 26. As we broaden our view of energy metabolism, we'll see that insulin is not only responding to energy status and to energetic versatility, it's also doing things outside of energy metabolism that direct how you use your energy. And it's directing them in ways that funnel energy into pathways that promote long-term health. And that may be because insulin is not just about glucose, it's about energetic versatility. And the reason that it responds to dietary glucose is because dietary glucose is so important in providing that energetic versatility. Now, at the same time, if glucose is so essential because of its versatility, that also implies that under conditions of glucose deprivation, we are going to have two things that should be absolutely critical. Number one is a way to make glucose from non-carbohydrate precursors, and that's gluconeogenesis. Number two is a way to conserve glucose when we don't have that much for its most critical purposes. And ketogenesis plays an important role in that aspect. So in the lessons that follow, we're now going to turn our attention to the specific ways that we make and conserve glucose under conditions of glucose deprivation. The audio of this lesson was generously enhanced and post-processed by Bob Devodian of Torian Mixing, giving you strong sound and dependable quality. You can find more of his work at torianonlinemixing.com. To continue watching these lessons, you can find them on my YouTube channel at youtube.com slash chrismasterjohn, or on my Facebook page at facebook.com slash chrismasterjohn, or you can sign up for MWM Pro to get early access to content, enhanced keyword searching, self-pacing tools, downloadable transcripts, downloadable audio, and a rich array of hyperlinked further reading suggestions, and a community with a forum for each lesson. So if you really want to own these lessons, study them, and get the most out of them, you can sign up for MWM Pro at chrismasterjohnphd.com slash pro. All right, hope you enjoyed this lesson. Signing off, this is Chris Masterjohn of chrismasterjohnphd.com. You've been watching Masterclass with Masterjohn, and I will see you in the next lesson.